Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, a senior policy fellow here at ECFR, standing in for the regular host Mark Leonard. This week, we look to Latin America and to the crisis in Venezuela. On Monday, a group of European countries, including France, Spain, Germany and the UK, announced that they were recognizing the head of Venezuela's National Assembly, Juan Guaido, as the country's interim president. By doing so, they joined ranks with the United States and many Latin American countries, but attracted the scorn of the man who continues to control the country, Nicolas Maduro. He said the actions of Spain and other European countries were cowardly and disastrous. So what does the European move mean, and what impact will it have? With me to discuss this are José Ignacio Torreblanca, head of ECFR's Madrid office, Sergei Sukankin, a, a fellow at the Jamestown Foundation working on Russian security policy, and Federica Padeau, an international lawyer based at Cambridge, and herself a Venezuelan national. So Nacho, if I can come to you first, how significant do you think the, the European move is in terms of its impact in, on Venezuela? Well, I think it's, it supports um, um, Juan Guaido as an as a interim president. It's very important because one of the things which is key for the European Union to do in this crisis is to try to extract the crisis from turning into a global geopolitical crisis and a crisis which would fit into the mini Cold War which um, the United States and Russia are currently fighting in other scenarios. So the intervention of the European Union together with Canada should have as a goal to devolve the process to the regional arena in the contact with the Lima group. Uh, and in that way, it is a very welcome um, intervention. The, the Lima group, that's the, the Latin American countries that are taking the initiative on this. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, it, it, it is of uh, uttermost importance you know, that we stop uh, the United States and Russia from turning these into yet another confrontation on their own terms, which is probably which, uh, what, what some in Washington and Moscow want, because that would block the decision and, and would prevent um, uh, democratic forces uh, in Venezuela, but also around Venezuela, to, to try to and find a solution to, to the issue. Now, of course, it, you know, the United States has recognized Guaido, uh, and the Europeans are more or less doing the same. But you think that that um, European countries can still position themselves in a way that's a little bit different from the United States with its history of, uh, you know, uh, support for regime change? Well, yes, they should, because uh, first they should uh, say that uh, they should ask Trump to stop talking about military interventions, because this is exactly what Maduro needs in order to, uh, to, 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 to frame all of this in terms of external aggression and intervention in domestic affairs. We have to put the frame into, uh, uh, into the Venezuelan population, which is uh, currently undergoing a huge humanitarian crisis with three million people uh, having already left the country and on the violations of the, uh, of, of the regime of their own constitution. 
So it, it should be very welcome that the European Union would ask Trump to stop you know where he has uh, you know where he has stood now and because there is a consensus between Democrats and Republicans in Washington about the recognition for, for Guaido. This is the universal consensus among democratic countries at this point, and this is where we should stop. Any any point further than that does not only complicate things, uh, but makes it almost impossible for, uh, for, for for those who want to bring democracy back to Venezuela to work in a in a in a, in a conducive environment. Federica, it's um. You know, as as uh, Nacho says, there is a significant number of countries now that have recognized Guaido as the, the rightful president. And yet, traditionally, recognition in international law um, takes place when a, a figure or a government has a lot more control on the ground than Guaido seems to have at this moment. So is this a, a kind of anomaly in terms of what these countries are doing? Um, yes and no, in that, um, well, certainly recognition comes to governments that possess control over territory. There are examples of recognition of, of governments that do not have control over territory, governments in exile being the first example. Not only are they not in control of the territory, they're not even in the territory at the time when they are recognized as governments in exile. Admittedly, the situation in Venezuela is different from that of a government in exile, but the point is that precedent exists. Number one. Number two, the question always is, what do we mean by control? Um, and, and control can be, yes, physical control over territory, but it is also control over resources, control over finances, control over people. Uh, it seems that in this situation, there, there's a bit of a, um, a this separation in terms of what control Maduro has and what control Guaido has. Maduro would seem to have control over the military. And so in a way could have control over the physical territory. But Guaido has the support of the people and is said to have been looking to obtain control over foreign resources. Uh, so bank accounts of the Venezuelan government abroad. Uh, we heard recently that the English, that the central bank, um, the English um, central bank refused uh, to release the gold of the Venezuelan state to Maduro's government. And so a question will be, well, will it follow from the UK's recognition of Guaido as the uh, legitimate government of the state that they will release those resources to Guaido if he asks? So while there may be, we, we have this idea of control over territory as being necessarily physical control over territory, but there, there are multiple aspects to what you can do in terms of control. One, one interesting thing as well is that governments, the point of governments is to represent, represent internally the people, which Guaido's government seems to do, but also represent internationally. And that we enter into a small sort of chicken and the egg scenario where the more recognitions you get, the more you're able to, to represent the state internationally and the more you become a legitimate government. Uh, so international recognition can play a role in kind of compensating for the lack, for a certain lack of territorial control, as it were. So do you see this as something which is primarily a kind of symbolic um, act of endorsement to, to boost Guaido's stature or do really significant, um, you know, legal consequences follow from these recognitions that we've seen? I think that so the recognition can do two things. On the one hand, it can, it can be a, a symbolic act of merely saying, well, we're entering into relations with you, but it can also be a legal act of recognition. Now, the language that these recognizing states have used is they recognize him 
as the government of the Venezuelan state. So it seems that they are recognizing him as the representative of the Venezuelan people in an international law sense. So legal consequences would follow from that, including you know, the ability of Guaido, for instance, to enter into treaty relations with other states, his ability to appoint diplomats abroad. Um, an interesting question will be his accreditation in international organizations. Can he send a diplomat to the United Nations, and will the United Nations recognize that diplomat as representing the Venezuelan state? Uh, but in addition come other consequences, including, for, for instance, uh, diplomatic immunities, their ability to represent the state in international courts and tribunals, uh, and most importantly, the, the responsibility to comply with the state's international obligations. The state is an abstract entity. It can only act through its government. And so it falls on why those government now to comply with the state's international obligations. And that, that might make it a bit tricky because if he doesn't actually have full control over territory, um, he might fall foul of certain international obligations, such as the protection of foreigners, protection of diplomats, and so on. So while it does seem that it is potentially just symbolic, there may be some important legal consequences that flow from it. And we'll only really know to what extent these recognitions are meant to be legal as time goes on. So will the UK, for instance, release or give access to Guaido to Venezuela's bank accounts uh, in Britain, for instance? Yes, right. Um, Sergei, um, Nacho said at the beginning that one of the things that the European initiative could do would be to um, remove the, the Venezuela crisis from this dynamic of the United States versus Russia. Um, how committed is Russia? Obviously, Venezuela is uh, a long way away, and yet it seems that it you know, has a, quite a strong investment in supporting Maduro at this point. Uh, yes, uh, well, I think that uh, Russia's current interest is, in fact, a continuation of its uh, foreign policy, of the Soviet foreign policy. Uh, and uh, there is a significant legacy of uh, Evgeny Primakov here. If we take a look at the map of Latin America, we'll see that uh, Venezuela, along with Cuba and Nicaragua, they constitute this uh, triangle and Venezuela is by far the most important pillar of this triangle. Uh, Russia, since 2000, Russia has invested approximately 17 billion of US dollars um, in the local economy. And if things go really ugly uh, for the Russian side, Russia will never get back <clears throat> any uh, any return on these investments. Uh, so, but at the same time, Russia is very well aware uh, of the fact that um, Venezuela and Latin America, Central America, it's uh, in fact the U.S. backyard. And uh, Washington will go much further than in Syria, let alone in Ukraine. That's why here I see only two main players. It's uh, the United States and it's the Russian Federation. And uh, position of the United States is uh, crucial. If the United States does not uh, apply enough pressure, the Russian side will see the room for opportunity here. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, the situation might aggravate, uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it a civil war, but uh, it might aggravate further. And is, uh, I, I gather that there are Russian mercenaries already present or on their way to Venezuela. Do you think that the commitment there includes a commitment to, you know, to defend the regime through the investment of Russian force, if necessary? Well, first of all, uh, it's uh, 
this information has not been corroborated by any visual images. So once we get the images, we can say for sure that yes, Russian mercenaries are in Venezuela. Uh, today, what we can uh, operate with are just uh, certain rumors, some uh, you know uh, information from from the surface. Uh, it all depends on the position of the United States. If Russia sees that uh, this is um, a point where Moscow could apply pressure, and if there is not enough commitment from the side of the United States, then yes, uh, Russia might actually activate its mercenaries, its private military contractors, same thing as in Syria. Uh, if the United States um, demonstrates unyielding position, uh, then uh, Russia will be, its opportunities uh, will be curtailed in many ways. Nacho, do you see the, you know, the, obviously this act of recognition from Europe is, uh, is an important step, uh, but on its own, it doesn't seem that it's going to be sufficient to really change the dynamic. So what do you think European countries should be doing now to, to follow up um, and to show their commitment to, to looking for a, a way out of this crisis? Well, precisely, you know, returning the crisis to, to Latin America and to the region is very important because what is, uh, what is key in this case is not, of course, Russian presence in Venezuela, but it's Cuban presence in, in Venezuela. You know, there are estimations that place up to 20,000 Cubans uh, in Venezuela, and, and it is not even important to, to, to quantify the number, but we know that qualitatively, the whole security apparatus which allows uh, Maduro to continue with the repression uh, is managed with the assistance of, uh, of Cuban operatives. And the lifeline between, between Cuba and Venezuela is essential because Cuba extracts from Venezuela the oil that it needs to continue working. So it's a parasitarian you know, relationship which is very dear to, to Cuba. And, and the only way to, uh, to have uh, Cuba accepting uh, a plug off of, 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 of the lifeline that, that they have in Venezuela is with the support of leaders in the regions and in terms of assurances that the flow of oil will continue to, to Cuba. This is something which Mexico could do, and this is why the silence so far of López Obrador, by not coincidence also the silence of the Pope, which is very revealing at this, uh, at this point, it's something on which the European Union has to work very closely. First, I think it is important, as, as it was said, that the Union helps uh, Guaido uh, in freezing the assets of the regime outside uh, Venezuela, because this will turn, uh, will, you know, we will create insecurity among the ranks of the military, which they are actually running the oil and most of the, um, of the, of the state enterprises in, in Venezuela. Uh, this will help the military to, to, to change sides and to, 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 to stop supporting uh, Maduro. So what, what the EU could do, both economically and financially, it is very important. Also, in terms of supporting humanitarian aid being sent to the border of Venezuela, especially with, uh, with Colombia, and putting a bit more pressure on, on, on both uh, Mexico and Cuba. Um, to, to, to help find a solution. As, as, as it was said, you know, we don't have a risk of a civil war in, in Venezuela because the regime has all the weapons and then has mobilized uh, 50,000 strong militia, uh, which is under the control of uh, Bolivarian elements in the neighborhoods, and the opposition has no weapons. So um, the problem is uh, not a civil war, but a bloodshed 
uh, which has already started with 40 people dead in the first days of the of the demonstration. So time is vital because uh, the humanitarian crisis is going to be aggravated if there is no uh, food entering and, 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 and pharmaceuticals entering the country. And the European Union is therefore in a very weak position because the effective control in the territory is in the hands of Maduro and only the Cubans and the army are the ones who can change the balance and, 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 and oust Maduro. Isn't there a tension, though, between the, the need of, um, you know, of the Europeans, of the international community to negotiate and deal with Maduro um, precisely on questions like humanitarian aid or perhaps to, to try and work towards some sort of you know, process of negotiation um, or something along those lines, and the, the fact that they've now unrecognized him um, and effectively declared him someone with no legitimate authority in the country. Well, we are beyond that point because effectively we have uh, unrecognized Maduro. He's not the legitimate president of the country anymore. I mean, it was not, of course, he was not before because of the fraud on the elections, but now we have formally declared that he's not the president of Venezuela, so we should talk to Guaido, and those who we should help Guaido to talk to, and those we should talk to, are those who can actually help Guaido to get rid of Maduro and to make sure that Maduro leaves the country. So, um, you know, whichever contact should, should take place within with the regime in Venezuela at this point, it should be first and foremost, uh, I think, uh, with the army. Um, in order to to convince them that uh, that they have to to change uh, guard and you know and, and place themselves at the uh, disposal of the of the assembly, uh, Maduro had eight days in which uh, the union actually the European Union did a very risky gamble to offer him to conduct elections. Which had Maduro accepted this, it would have been a contradiction in terms because we had already declared that he was not the legitimate president of the country, and that Guaido was the legitimate president. So fortunately, you know, Maduro didn't take the ultimatum um, and therefore uh, got himself out of the picture and out of the uh, solution at this point. Federica, from your perspective, what do you think are the, the most important steps that, um, you know, that Guaido could be taking and that the Europeans could be encouraging him um, to do in order to, to move the situation forward? Legitimacy really is a question of perception. And the, the more he obtains international backing, uh, the more he maintains that popular support, the more it's likely that the people in the military might start seeing him as the legitimate authority in the territory. Now, there are some signs of perhaps potential cracks in even Maduro's own control over the military. One of the interesting things about the protests on Saturday on the 2nd of February is that the, the, the riot police did not go out. There was one video showing um, in the state of Lada, the riot police actually leaving a demonstration and one of the riot police embracing one of the demonstrators. Now, th there's no indication of why this happened, but one of the potential explanations is that Maduro perhaps knew that if he gave the order, it wouldn't be followed. And so to avoid being seen as losing control, losing his grip over the, over the military, um, he did not give the order for them to go out, which had happened in every previous demonstration. Um, every previous demonstration, riot police were there shooting on the people and so on. So certainly what he needs to do is to continue maintaining that international backing and trying to get even more, if possible, um, and slowly 
as Nacho was saying earlier, trying to make sure that he that the military flips, basically. Now, if the military flip, it will be the rank and file and, and the risk of bloodshed and war is perhaps possible, given that it would be the rank and file of the military against other members of the military. So the, the risk is always there. There's a lot of weapons in Venezuela. There's a lot of weapons in Caracas. There's a reason why it's one of the, the murder capital of the world, as they say. So uh, the, the risk is, is there. But international backing within limits. So in, this, in the limits that Nacho was discussing, without the rhetoric of military intervention and regime shame, especially by, by the US, it, it's the thing that he probably should continue doing. If the situation does deteriorate in the way that, you know, that you are warning there's a potential, um, and if Guaido did appeal for international support to, you know, to defend himself and uh, his backers, uh, presumably at this point, because he is now recognized, um, he would have a, you know, a, a strong legal case for doing that. And any action from outside to defend him would not count as a a violation of Venezuelan sovereignty. Do you see this as a, you know, as a possibility, something that could happen? I don't think that it's in the cards for the opposition, but certainly as a matter of international law, he is the government of the state. He can request foreign intervention. And this foreign intervention can take the form of military intervention. Now, there are certain limits to what is possible in terms of military intervention. It seems to be perfectly acceptable and legal to request foreign intervention to quash an internal revolt. But once we get to the stage of a civil war and we have difficulty defining what a civil war is in legal terms, international law is a bit more cautious. Once there is a civil war, international law forbids intervention, both on behalf of the government as on behalf of the um, um, rebellious uh, group fighting the government. Um, whether this prohibition remains intact in light of recent events is perhaps doubtful. And there are arguments that the interventions in Syria and in Iraq and in Libya and so on have changed the international law on the matter and that intervention now in civil wars is permissible. Um, of course, it, it will put whichever state is asked to intervene in a very difficult position. Because if it turns out that Guaido loses control and Maduro remains in power, they will have committed a violation of not only the principle of non-intervention, but of the prohibition on the use of force. Um, so they, they, if they should look at it with a lot of care. Um, usually when there are two authorities contesting um, the government to, to be the government of a state, a good rule of thumb is normally to check whether the one that is requesting your intervention does have control over territory because you do have to deploy your, your troops in territory. And so it has to be controlled by the authority you're supporting. Um, and usually to know which one is the actual government, you would tend to look at things like accreditation at the United Nations, whose representatives are accepted at the United Nations as representatives of the government. And that can give you an indication of who is actually accepted generally as the government of the state. Now here, I don't know, it's unlikely that Guaido will have sent members to the United Nations. And if they did in the United Nations, the question of accreditation would probably be down to votes of the member states. So the more recognition he gets internationally, the more he will be likely to win a vote in the United Nations, say, to recognize his representatives as being accredited before the organization. Um, so if I were an inter an, a state who's been asked for help, I would certainly look at the question carefully. Now, I think it has been mostly ruled out by the Lima group. 
uh, yesterday, on Monday, sorry, yeah, yesterday, and uh, by Guaido himself. But the United States continues to use this rhetoric of military intervention, which is very dangerous, not only legally, but also politically um, for, this, for the legitimacy of Guaido's uh, government. Right. Yes. Yes. And as as Nacho said, you know, it's the situation now. It does certainly seems quite far from that of a, a civil war. Sergey, do you think, from your perspective, it seems that you know Russia? It's kind of hard to say what Russia is really getting out of its uh, investment and support for the Maduro regime at this point, apart from a certain geopolitical foothold. But in economic and financial terms. Um, it does look a lot like a losing bet, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, the most important element here, I think, uh, is the uh, the measure of uh, moral morality and psychology, moral psychological pressure. If and prim- the most important element is the measure of sanctions. Uh, if the regime falls, if the current regime falls, it will show that. Uh, the policy of economic sanctions that uh, has been carried on by the, by Washington, by the United States, um, against a resource-rich country is, in fact, something that is viable, something that does work. And for Russia, I think that this is the worst nightmare, because for years, starting from 2014, the Russian government has been trying to... Uh, convince both its domestic population and uh, the external audience that uh, economic sanctions imposed by the European Union, by the Western world, by the United States, uh, they they do not work, they do not affect Russian economy. But uh, this example, this case study, if the regime falls, this will show that um, policy of economic sanctions, it does have certain ground, and this really invigorate Washington and at the same time uh, will be seen as a a sign of explicit defeat from the side of the Russian Federation. I can see that argument. And yet, at the same time, it seems that, you know, there would be limits on how far Russia wants to go uh, for what is essentially a symbolic point. Yes, definitely. Definitely. That's what I said. Uh, Venezuela is uh, the U.S. backyard and uh, Russia is well aware that it's not Syria or it's not Ukraine. Uh, so a lot will depend on position of the United States and the way how Washington uh, will conduct. Uh, also, well, we should be aware of the fact that uh, a lot is at stake for the European Union. From my perspective, uh, I think that uh, here, the European Union has to be able to speak with one voice, and uh, this voice, the the um, Spain should be put in the vanguard of uh, European Union uh, in this regard because of cultural proximity. Uh, and um, today, we don't see this coherent, this cohesion within the European Union, and this invigorates Russia. Of course, it's uh, it's uh, the best piece of news uh, for the Russian side so far. But if, say, um, uh, Maduro was beginning to lose support, that the, you know, that we were seeing defections from, you know, sort of middle or senior ranks of the army, at that point, do you think Russia would have any um, instinct to, to, to try and sort of step in and back him? Or would they, you know, be willing at some point to say that the game's up here? Well, again, this will depend uh, on 
the uh, external support and primarily the United States because Russia doesn't want to uh, involve uh, itself in a fight with the United States on its territory. It's not Syria, it's different. Uh, even in Syria, when Russia suffered a uh, humiliating defeat near Deir Zor, uh, the situation was uh, rethought and redeemed by uh, the Russian military staff. And at the same time, uh, one of the most important element, uh, elements is uh, the uh, trajectory of the public protest movement. Uh, so um, these are two most important things here, I guess. Nacho, how, how, um, how do you see the, the situation unfolding at this point? How... You know, do you have any sense of what the time scale is? Is this something where we could see developments moving quite quickly? Or do you think it's a case of kind of steady pressure um, from the Latin American countries with Europe standing behind them over an extended period? Well, I know the military, I mean, I guess the military at this point, they know that the flow of money has stopped. You know, the, the only income that the regime uh, makes comes from the exports of oil. So they don't have any alternative way, you know, to substitute their the income. So this should work like very fast in the sense that, the, you know, you, 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 it, it's very easy to anticipate that you're going to be running on out of cash. Then the pressure at the border to allow to enter humanitarian aid forces the military either to obey uh, Maduro on ground uh, and then, you know, block these these entrances, or to just, uh, you know, let these these convoys uh, pass. Uh, probably uh, Maduro will lose first the control of the periphery and uh, regions in the country, and then the last thing to to fall probably would be uh, would be Caracas, in which uh, he would, you know, he will try to 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 entrench. But I I would envisage a progressive loss of control because we are already seeing military units outside Caracas in which soldiers, which of course have families and are experiencing uh, firsthand, you know, the, 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 the absolutely disastrous humanitarian situation in which, you know, let us remember that, that 90% of the people in Venezuela is under the poverty line now, and there are severe shortages of both foods and, and pharmaceuticals. So, um, I, I think there are going to be more and more defections in uh, as as in, in, in remote units, and, and that will uh, you know would contaminate and will slowly move to the to the capital. At some point, it could be very risky not to have a civil guard, but a, but a, but a clash between some military units and some units which would want to stand by Bolivarian. Uh, you know, to, to stand by Maduro. So this is, to me, the the very risky scenario in which all these weapons, which are out of control, uh, would try to, to to support Maduro against the army, and then the army would be in uh, force to crush those remaining uh, diehards um, for for Maduro. So the the word crisis is uh, is often thrown at around quite loosely, but Venezuela does really seem to be a country in crisis listening to those figures there. Um, and so that certainly would be, a, you know, give one hope that the situation could be resolved um, fairly quickly. We're, we're at the end of our time. Um, traditionally, we ask our participants to, to give us um, any books or other articles that, to suggest anything that they've been reading that's interesting. Um, Sergei, I know you've written a piece for ECFR about the, the Russian perspective on Venezuela, um, which uh, will, you know, 
direct our listeners to. Is there anything else that, that you've been reading recently you'd recommend? Uh, yes, I would definitely recommend a book by Evgeny Messner, uh, who was an officer uh, in Russian Imperial Army, and then he had to immigrate. By the way, he died in Buenos Aires uh, and was buried at the cemetery, uh, the British cemetery. Uh, the name of this, the title of this book is Mutiny or the Name of the Third World War. Uh, my choice of reading is stipulated by my current project that I'm doing with the Jamestown Foundation, um, which is about Russian private military companies. And this book, um, even though it was written in the 50s and completed in the 60s, it actually predicted the way how future wars will, uh, would be waged, uh, that small cells, small tactical groups and special forces uh, would have played the most the most essential role in a future military conflict. So I guess something that was written almost half a century ago, today it's acquiring totally new meaning. And this is definitely a book that should be read. Great. Thank you. Uh, Federica, I know that you recently had a baby. You may not have that much time for reading, but is there anything that you have found time to read? I have read in the past a book by Alan Brewer Carías, who is one of the foremost constitutional lawyers and constitutional law theorists in Venezuela. And the book is actually written in English, published by Cambridge University Press, and it's called Dismantling Democracy in Venezuela, the Chavez Authoritarian Experiment. And it's basically the, the assessment of a constitutional lawyer on how Chavez's government slowly eroded democratic principles in Venezuela, which is a good background explanation to how we got to where we are now in terms of the legal constitutional arrangements. Um, as for reading at the moment, yeah, with a seven-week-old baby, most I can read is short articles. Um, and there's a great, great blog online called Caracas Chronicles, uh, which is written by a series of Venezuelan experts in multiple areas, economics, um, d d um, international relations, and so on, based in Venezuela and abroad. And they have daily articles uh, on the current developments in Venezuela. So that is a fantastic resource. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And Nacho? Yeah, I'm going to recommend a book, but since it's not about Venezuela, I first wanted to recommend, because it would be soon on our website, an interview we did yesterday with former president of Spain, uh, Felipe González, in which he lays out uh, you know, his vision. He's been very involved uh, in the last uh, 10 years almost in, in, in Venezuela in trying to help the opposition um, to push uh, I mean, to, to sustain first and, and to return democracy to the country. So it would be on video but also on, uh, on, on on our website and then on the, the book I, uh, I'm, I'm currently reading is about um, it's called artificial intelligence superpowers China Silicon Valley and the new world order and um, it's quite of a it's quite of an uh, awakening uh, vision of how artificial intelligence now is beyond uh, research is now in a stage of application and the Chinese are going to be much better at reaping the benefits of artificial intelligence than those in the United States and in some countries of Europe which uh, who actually come up with, came up with it. Great, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and I'll just say um, that this with this podcast, this is uh, ending my um, spell as the standing in for the regular host. Next week, Mark Leonard will be back, um, but I'll hope to occasionally make a guest appearance. Um, but for now, I'll say goodbye from myself, from Nacho Torreblanca, from Sergei Sukankin, and from Federica Pedo. Thank you.
The researcher for ECFR's podcasts is uh, Jonathan Hackenbroich, and our editor is Katerina Botel-Atsinaro. <laughs>